This show was first broadcast on Free FM, Hamilton, New Zealand's community access media organisation. For more information on our lineup of shows and the role we play in the media, visit freefm.org.nz. Greetings and welcome. Let's start right off by setting our motivation for participating in the program today. Those who have been with us before will know that the main motivation we encourage for the program is bodhicitta, the mind that wishes to gain enlightenment for the benefit of all living beings. So even if you haven't tuned in before, try to at least think that that can be your motivation for today. Let this program be the cause for all of us to attain enlightenment so we can best help others in whatever way they need, but especially to attain enlightenment themselves, just like that. Thank you. Now in last week's program, we finished with some observations from the blog of Dr. Nick Reed, a psychotherapist who explains projection in How You Make Me Feel, Projection and Its Identification. He talks about how we project onto others a lot of stuff that we don't really want to acknowledge in ourselves and then we feel free to criticize them. It's part of what we do in childhood when we dump everything we don't like onto others and call them enemies and project all we admire onto those who appear to be our good guys. Projection is a mental trick, Dr. Reed says. There are goodies and baddies. In my childhood, these were cowboys and Indians, the English and the Germans. How differently you see things as you grow up. Maturity is a state of recognizing the bad feelings, taking them back and containing them, realizing that what we criticize in other people is also part of us, accepting our essential humanity. But then some of us and our institutions just never do grow into maturity. Dr. Reed points out how pervasive projection is in our society. Just look at the way one organization touts its own virtues and projects all the bad stuff onto competitors. In just about every sphere, we tend to puff ourselves up and belittle others. But, he says, this projection only works if we go along with it, if we care about how, the, how others make us feel. He says, social exclusion is a powerful force, guilt and shame, powerful identifications. People who have done something shameful to attract the projection of others, who use it as a shield for their own shame. And it's always the ones with most to be ashamed of that seek out those they can offload onto. Those who feel unhappy make those who are close to them unhappy too. He mentions many examples. Bullies can't contain their own fear, so they make others frightened of them. Suspicious people are secretive and engender mistrust and lies. Needy people cannot give and induce need in others. Those who are envious put on airs and graces to try to make others envy them. Lovers who feel insecure may do something to make their partners feel jealous. Unhappy and lonely people make those who are close to them unhappy too because at least they are together in their misery. Teachers who are not confident can make their students feel stupid, but equally the overconfident student can make a, def a teacher defensive. You make me feel sick. You make me so angry. You just make me depressed. These are all common identifications within relationships, says Dr. Reed. He talks about how even in his field of psychotherapy, 
doctors can be influenced by projections from their patients. As a therapist, I'd always marveled at how one client could make me feel so wound up and energetic, the next so tired I could fall asleep and have actually done so. But they were lying on the couch and I was sitting behind them and they never noticed. And this is where we ended our last program. But Dr. Reed goes on with another major example, marriage, which he describes as states of mutual projection and identification. He says, partners try to look after their own well-being by making their partners shoulder the blame and feel bad. You never think. You're totally selfish. I just can't rely on you. In a way, they need the other to get rid of the bad feelings. When it works well, it's a trade-off. One may make the other feel alive, while the other projects a feeling of safety. It works. Their problems come when one of them changes the dynamic, meets someone else, suffers a setback that destroys their confidence, accepts a job that satisfies their needs. And that's Dr. Reed. And yes, maybe it works, but can we really say that this is how to build a healthy relationship? And if it works that way in our closest relationships, what does that say about all our other relationships? But it's not all bad. Dr. Reed says that projective identification can encourage us to look into ourselves. When somebody behaves angrily or badly to us, he says, we need to reflect on our own attitude and behavior and the reason for it. How did it all start? What was the trigger, the fear? We all have responsibility in our functioning society to bring out the best in people, the most constructive response. But in a narcissistic, self-seeking society, people all too often have to have their own way because we are worth it. It may be unfashionable to say, but I do believe that we have the friends, the colleagues, the children and the relationships we deserve because we help to make them the way they are for us. So what can you say about your relationships? Do you bring out the best in people or project your own selfishness and neediness in onto them? It's worth taking a little time to examine ourselves and how we do relate to others, don't you think? Now this whole discussion came about because we had reached a section of mind training like the rays of the sun, the text we've been following, on the precepts of mind training. This comes out in the English as a series of slogans, the last of which was, don't concern yourself with others' business. Now this basically means, don't concern yourself with others' faults. Yet, as we noted, the faults we find in others might just be our own projections, and then it would be a good idea to be concerned with them. If we can realize they are projections, we can do something about them. Whereas if we don't, and act them out, we can easily make a great deal of trouble, both for ourselves and others. This fits well within the mind training that tells us to be more concerned with our own shortcomings than those of others. In the book, Advice from a Spiritual Friend, Brian Beresford puts a cap on it with this. We should cease intentionally watching and waiting for faults in others, but instead be aware and ready to judge whether our own deeds are correct or incorrect. When we walk along a dangerous cliff, we do not pay attention to what is happening around us, but watch our step in case we fall. In the same way, we should focus our attention inwardly, 
Even if we accidentally notice bad attributes in others, we immediately should think that such a judgment is based upon a mistaken visual or auditory perception of negativities. And that's Brian Beresford. In fact, it would be best if we could see with purity of vision, as explained by Dilgo Kensi Rinpoche in the book Enlightened Courage. He says, when we see defects in others, people in general, but particularly those who have entered the Dharma, who are disciples of the same teacher, or who, being clothed in the banner of the monastic robes, are the support for the offerings of gods and men alike, we should understand that it is the impurity of our perception which is at fault. When we look into a mirror, we see a dirty face because our own face is dirty. In the same way, the defects of others are nothing but our impure way of seeing them. By thinking in this way, we should try to rid ourselves of this perception of the faults of others and cultivate the attitude whereby the whole of existence, all appearances, are experienced as pure. Now Lama Surya Das achieves just this. He saw things as intrinsically pure and described it beautifully for us who have yet to experience it in a post on www.surya.org titled Pure Vision. This is what he says. I've noticed that if I can change the frame, the picture always looks quite different. I wonder what new and high-tech specs or special eyewear can provide us with Buddha vision. And more importantly, as my wife would want to know, how do they look on me? How would Buddha see? This is a good question to ask. Buddhism actually has some practices to help us see things through such a divine eye. My favorite practice of this kind is called pure perceptions. Cultivating this kind of sacred outlook helps us see the Buddha, the light, the divinity in everyone and everything, and to experience this very world we live in as a Buddha field, a pure land or paradise. Actually, this isn't just something we superimpose upon reality, like donning the proverbial rose-colored glasses. Instead, it's more akin to seeing things as they actually are. Pure perception or sacred outlook is something we can practice daily and even moment to moment as a way of cultivating Buddha vision, a way which purifies and transforms our way of relating to everyone and everything. As the Buddha himself said, according to Zen Buddhist teaching, when I was awakened, all were awakened, even the rocks and the trees. We may hear about sacred vision or we may read about it in the sutras, in teaching tales or personal anecdotes. We may believe or we may wonder and doubt. Yet we can each come to know that there really is a there right here and sacred vision is accessible even from just a brief visit. A genuine glimpse or spiritual epiphany can help. An authentic awakening experience, a glimpse of reality, can become our inner guide or pole star. Yet that infinite emptiness, the shining void mystics talk about, which is none other than the intrinsic Buddha nature of one's own heart and mind, is not the end of the path, but the beginning of the true path. There is no substitute for such an awakening experience, one that gives us a naked glimpse into there. This one experience alone can cut through and uproot many of the illusions and delusions we have about the nature of reality. Our awareness, understanding and perspective fundamentally shifts and we come to know pure vision, 
Buddha vision, just as we know the sun exists, firsthand, without needing to see it all of the time. We know it's there from one glimpse. As the poet Kabir sang, I glimpsed it for 15 seconds and it made me a servant for life. One glimpse of pure vision, sacred outlook, was enough to transform my life and my world. Guru Padmasambhava said long ago, Let go into the clear light, trust it, merge with it. It's your own true nature, it is home. I myself was once vouchsafed a sacred glimpse of this earth as an altar and all who walk upon it as gods and goddesses, dakas and dakinis. In fact, this pure vision was so strongly impressed upon my consciousness 25 years ago that I can still see it in some way right now. Believing is seeing. It was spring in the Catskills, 1977. My guru, Kalwal Kamapa, was giving an empowerment and blessing of land for a new monastery to be built at Putnam County, New York. I'd come from my cabin on Woodstock's Mount Guardian for the day, and what a day it was. This was the first time that I was literally transported to another place, another plane, another reality entirely. His Holiness sat radiating infinite light, which both poured out of him and into me, and from me into him, at one and the same time, more powerful than a thundering waterfall. I was electrified, transformed, and I was no more. The page had been turned, the binding consumed. When I returned, the chanting was winding down and everything fell back into place. Jangmong Rinpoche smiled knowingly and all was well. I heard a voice in my head whisper, The Buddha of infinite light is not in the western pure land. He is right here in the world. I knew my guru was that Buddha and forever with me and within me. Infinite light was before my eyes for several days before I drifted back to my normal state of semi-consciousness. I was in this world, but definitely not of it. This must be what Shakyamuni Buddha meant when he said in the Diamond Sutra that life is like a dream, a mirage, a sitcom. For things are not what they seem to be, nor are they otherwise. I have learned it's easier to visit the Pure Lands than to live there. Although I can still see it before me, I find myself trying to return. Undoubtedly I'm looking upwards when I should be looking inwards, seeing more deeply. What we seek we are, it's all within. From that single glimpse I know as Kabir knew. We're all Buddhas at heart, we simply have to recognize that fact. Turn the searchlight, the spotlight, inward. I can still hear the voice. This land where we stand is the pure land, this very body, the body of Buddha. So turn the searchlight inward, catch a glimpse and know. And that is Lama Surya Das. Now do you think we could come to such an amazing experience if our mind is busy finding fault with this person and that person, this situation and that situation? Surely there must be some purity of mind not concerned with fault finding for that purity of vision to shine through even for an instant. So not only will we have a much happier ordinary day-to-day -day life if we can avoid fault finding, but we are opening ourselves to the opportunity of actually seeing things in the purest form.
Isn't it then worthwhile working to transform our negative, niggling and deluded mind? That is now enough on the slogan, don't concern yourself with the business of others. Let's now continue to the next slogan in the text, which reads, give up every hope of reward. Nam Kapel writes, you should not expect any mundane prosperity in this life or future lives as a result of your meditation, nor should you seek the states of liberation and omniscience out of self-interest. This is because the state of enlightenment should be sought in the interest of sentient beings. And he quotes Maitreya's text, The Ornament for Clear Realization, with this, The awakened mind is generated for others' welfare. The wish is for perfectly accomplished enlightenment. His Holiness the Dalai Lama clarifies in his commentary, We are not training our minds and changing our attitudes so that everyone will love us, nor are we seeking to gain some sort of fame or reward for being such a great religious spiritual person. Rather, we're going to change our attitudes solely for the purpose of being able to help others. We wish to attain enlightenment for the benefit of others, not for our own sake. Then on tricycle.org, the well-known Buddhist and meditation teacher Judy Leaf explains it like this. This slogan undercuts our attachment to either success or failure. It's a kind of positive giving up. Abandoning any hope of fruition does not mean abandoning our projects and ambitions. Instead, it points to a way of going about things that is present-focused rather than fixated on results. When we do anything, we usually do it for a purpose. We have some aim in mind and we hope to accomplish that aim. We hope to succeed rather than fail. That is fine, but what then happens is that our thoughts of success or failure begin to overpower the task at hand. The fear of failure can make us timid and unwilling to take risk, or clinging to a successful outcome can make us more and more tight. We become impatient and grit our teeth trying to force our desired outcome. The hope of fruition and the fear of failure go hand in hand. So much education and so much of the conventional thinking about how to motivate people is based on that model of hope and fear. We learn to expect some kind of reward or confirmation any time we succeed and to expect some form of punishment when we do not. But according to this slogan, it is better to abandon that whole approach. In that way, when we act, there are no hidden agendas or ulterior motives. Even the practice of developing loving-kindness through slogan practice could be tainted by this desire to be recognized and confirmed. Our attempts to develop loving-kindness may begin to be more about cultivating an image of being wise and compassionate than actually helping other people. Because of our need to confirm ourselves, to prove ourselves that our efforts have been successful, we may try to force a reaction of appreciation or gratitude on those who are supposedly selflessly helping. According to this slogan, there's more room for real kindness and compassion to arise if we let go of our attachment to results, or at least loosen it a little. And that's Judy Leaf. A more personal approach to this maxim comes from an article by Caitlin S. Hatch, a student of Chogyang Trumpa and Pema Chodron, on medium.com. She starts off by saying that the Dharma can be understood either by meaning or sense, and writes, 
To understand the meaning, one can read, hear and study Dharma until we grasp it intellectually. But to understand the sense is to practice and apply the teachings until we have a lived experience of them. This happened for me with the Lojong slogan, Abandon any hope of fruition. The meaning of it, intellectually, is that we should give up shooting for a goal on the path. As Chogyam Trumpa said, the path is the goal. We do not practice to an end. There is not some magic point at which we will be done practicing. When we choose this route, it is a lifelong commitment, a many lifelong commitment if rebirth is a concept that makes sense to you. Intellectually, I understood this quite early on as my root teacher, Ani Pema Children, emphasizes this in almost all her books and talks. It's something Elizabeth Mattis Numgill points to a lot as well. As Elizabeth says, the world is not a fixable place. And when she says fixable, she doesn't mean fixed as in not broken, but fixed as in static and unchanging. Despite my intellectual understanding of this, I still used practice as a way to avoid the messiness of life. I would meditate to feel better and stop once I did. That is to say, I thought of meditation as a way to relax, rather than what it is, training and being present. Now, Being present isn't always comfortable. In fact, being present can be downright painful, especially when we are resistant to it. When something was up for me, when my situation was groundless and I was struggling, I turned to meditation as an escape. This approach to meditation is in no way uncommon. It's the reason why so many people think they're bad at meditating. The misconception is that we're, it's about getting rid of negative aspects of ourselves, clearing the mind of thoughts and learning how to relax. But relaxation is just a side effect of meditation. The purpose of meditation is to develop awareness of and steadfastness with our experience of being human. It's a practice of being present, regardless of how we feel. Meditation is a method for training ourselves to feel how we feel as we're feeling it and be aware of what we're thinking as we think it. For years I trained in the opposite. I trained in running away from how I felt and trying to get rid of thoughts I didn't like. And this was before I came to Buddhism. This was just my way of being in the world because I didn't have any other supports when it came to mental illness. I had been diagnosed with panic disorder when I was 17, which went untreated until I was 23. I had coping mechanisms, certainly, but they were either temporary, unhealthy, or both. Eventually, everything came to a head when I had a mental breakdown after not sleeping and barely eating for four days. My family took me to the ER, where I was given anti-anxiety medication and told to seek professional help. Through the support of my mum, I was able to connect with a psychologist and through her, I found Anipema and began meditating. But for a long time, I was using meditation just as I used my previous coping me mechanisms to skim the painful aspects of life. I saw meditation as yet another way for me to do away with my neuroses. I wanted to only feel sane and content and happy and not to have to feel anxious or angry or sad or anything else I labelled as bad. I was effectively seeking some sort of resolution to being human, which is an impossible task. After years of therapy though, and years of listening to and studying the Dharma, 
I had an excellent foundation in place. So when my life fell apart utterly, I was unknowingly prepared. I say unknowingly because I still sought external solutions for a few weeks. As the situation went from bad to worse, I kept reaching out to friends and family, scrambling for ground. I'd call people and break down on the phone, freaking out as I tried to find some way to get rid of how I was feeling. I remember very clearly the day when my intellectual understanding shifted and I began to understand the sense of what it meant to abandon all hope of fruition, to let go of the idea that I could bring my experience to a standstill where I didn't feel pain or suffering. I had alienated myself from most of my social circle in the UK where I was living at the time. My pain was too much for people to bear and my friends were backing off, making themselves unavailable. I had other friends many miles away in my hometown of Calgary with whom I couldn't con connect in the way I wanted to. And all I really wanted was a hug. That was it, just a hug. I remember standing in the dining room of the house where I lived in London. I was aware that there were millions of people around me and no one I could turn to. When the thought came to my head, show up for yourself. I wanted a hug and as lame and as cheesy as it sounds, I wrapped my arms around myself, squeezing at the shoulders, pulling my ribs in tight. I fell to the floor and curled up into a ball, squeezing myself tighter and tighter. I remember it like watching a movie, but also being in it at the same time. I could see the part of me that was in so much pain and the whole storyline that went along with it. And I saw the part of me that loved me and wanted me to see that I was worthy of that love. It was like feeling the love I have felt for friends, dear, close friends, but for myself. I held on and let myself cry. I let myself be heartbroken and angry and alone and afraid and disappointed and grief-stricken. And I kept reminding myself that all those feelings were okay to have. They were normal. They were human. I let myself feel what I was feeling without trying to push it away or make it better or find a solution. Eventually, I pulled myself up off the floor and took myself to my meditation bench and sat. Waves of anxiety washed over me. I felt the release of adrenaline and cortisol, the fizz in my stomach as digestion shut down, an icy hot coolness in my veins and noticed my racing thoughts. I let them race by, not clinging to any of them or getting stuck on the storylines. I was too numb to, too tired and worn down. It was easy to follow the simple instruction I'd heard so many times before and just label each one thinking as it passed by. The emotional and mental pain was still there, but the resistance to it was gone. My suffering stopped being some big scary thing I had to purge and was just what was going on at that moment, as temporary as anything happening in any other moment. I did not need to change it or fix it or get rid of it. I did not need to label it bad or chase the storyline. I could bear with it, and indeed, this was exactly what I'd been training in by meditating, however irregularly. It's not easy to do abandoning hope of fruition. That is the single time I've truly done it in my life. But I know it's possible, and I know when we can live by the slogan, by the sense of it and not merely the meaning, it's incredibly powerful. It's always available to us at any given moment to relate to suffering differently. It was one of the most transformative experiences of my life 
and it's what gives me faith in the Dharma. And with this extraordinary story, we must leave, for our time is now up. Thanks for joining us today, and I hope you'll tune in again next week. Please dedicate any positive potential from the program to gaining enlightenment for all beings. Thanks, and goodbye. Thanks for listening to this Free FM podcast. If you want to hear more content like this, you can support Free FM via Patreon. Head to patreon.com slash freefm89 to find out more.